Our scripture today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 21. Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as beloved children. Though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became to you a father in Jesus Christ through the gospel. And I urge you then to be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. As I teach them everywhere and in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord will. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. As a professor, uh, D.A. Carson, he tells this story about one of the students, the many students that he's encountered over his time as a seminary professor. This was a student who was thinking of leaving the ministry and, and going back into his field of computer science, abandoning plans for vocational ministry. He said the student was pleasant, had a pretty solid grade point average, but to the professors, it had become obvious that the student had not put all of his training, all of his learning together. That is, he could define propitiation but he did not know what it was like to feel forgiven. He could defend the priority of grace and salvation, but he still felt as if he could never be good enough to be a minister. He could define holiness, but found himself practicing a form of firm self-discipline rather than pursuing holiness and grace. His life and his theological grasp had not come together. So mercifully, one of the other faculty members, an insightful man, took this student back to the cross. And from the cross, he went over the doctrinal points, one by one, tethering them to the cross, to the cross, to the cross, something that this student had never seen before. The professor says that he wept as he saw his life new in the light of Christ and his cross. The young man did go on to be a minister. The path is familiar to probably many of us. 
that you can know all of the right answers, that you can have all of the correct doctrine lined up, and by all means it looks like it's correct, and yet it's devoid of power. It's, it's lifeless, dull, and cold. Where does that power come from? To change the metaphor a little bit, you can try to make a meal by having all the right ingredients. You can take the recipe and put them all into a bowl. That's not what a dish makes, maybe unless it's cereal. Right? It's cooking. It's life and skill and sautéing blanching and putting it on and off. It's timing. It's, there is a action to our knowledge. It brings forth fruit and truth. So much of that was happening to the Corinthians. They had a church in front of them, and they had heard the gospel, and they could take doctrines, what they had learned from Paul, and they could name them just fine. They became a congregation full of bitterness fighting, we'll see later, lust and corruption. And Paul said, I have to treat you as people devoid of the Spirit. I'm treating you as if you're natural men who have a head full of theology, but not as brothers in the Spirit. Something we want to look at today as Paul walks them through, what they needed was not another teacher. They didn't need more lessons. They didn't need to just go and revisit the lessons being re-articulated. No, they needed a father. They needed power. They needed illustration. As we saw last time, he said, how are we supposed to be regarded as leaders in the church? Do you remember the two things primarily that Paul said? Servants. This is how we are to be regarded as servants and stewards of the mystery of the gospel. Hold those two things together as we go through this text. A servant isn't just someone who's a teacher. No, he's a servant. He is there to wash feet. And a steward of the mystery of the gospel is indeed a teacher, but he's a teacher that's revealing the secret things. That's often done by example, the way that we truly learn. If this is helpful to you this morning, we're going to divide this text up in three ways. The first of it being, we follow a crucified Messiah. One of the things that Paul wants to reiterate to them is that we follow a crucified Messiah. Second being, Power comes by leading an example. They needed an example. And the third being, the kingdom does not consist in talk, but in power. The kingdom does not consist in talk, but in power. Look at verse 8 with me. We follow a crucified Messiah. Paul says, already you have all that you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you become kings. Would that you did reign, that we might share the rule with you. There's a lot of sarcasm going on today. You might not be able to see it so closely since we're just isolated on one text, but it is thick with brutal sarcasm. The truth is they were reigning only in one place, and and that was just in their own minds. Uh, They hadn't become rich, and they hadn't become kings. Paul says, well, I, 
I really wish that you had become rich and you had become kings and that hearing the gospel now made you upstanding people in society and you were kind of like the Greeks and you had these wise men. You followed Paul, Paulus and Paul and, and while the gospel has come to you and really enriched your lives, making them so smooth and wonderful and polished. But for me, whatever reason, this old Paul guy, every time I go into a town and preach the gospel, they throw rats at my head and I keep getting thrown into prison. I wonder which of us is doing it wrong. He began to expose it in their hearts. They had taken the doctrine. They had taken the the uplifting words of Christ. They had taken the good news of the gospel and began to use it as an idol for their enrichment and not as an the central message of their Savior was suffering. It's not pride. It's not becoming puffed up like the Corinthians are constantly reminded of, but humility, of brokenness, of gratitude, of seeing that everything that they had was by grace. So the sarcasm there is thick. But one of the most devastating critiques is this word from Paul. Already, you guys, you have all you want. Already, you have all you want. They had gotten from the gospel. It wasn't just the, the humility and the, the life transformation and clinging on to Christ that began to obviously cling on to people and cling on to now riches and cling on to now status of reigning. He says, great. Well, if that's what you wanted from the gospel, it looks, it looks like you got it. But what a shame to think that that's what we get from Christ. And he won't allow that, by the way. We cannot use him as a pawn to get other things that we want. Remember the story in Acts when uh, the man wanted to pay to get the Spirit to perform parlor tricks. We are not allowed to do that. And I can hear the words of C.S. Lewis who so greatly reminds us. It's, it, in, in an age like ours that seems filled with lust, we're not confronted with wanting too many things. We're not confronted from scripture from having an inflated sense of appetite we're actually reprimanded and condemned because our appetites are far too small if you remember the kind of famous words of c.s lewis he says we're contented with playing in little mud puddles when we could be playing in the ocean it's not that our desires are too small or excuse me too great but rather they are far far too small and paul comes to him and says look if this is what you wanted from christ Looks like you got everything you want. How you doing? Well, we know earlier they're, they're full of bitterness. They're full of jealousy. They're full of contention. And I think it's worth remembering because it's a very hauntingly familiar echo from Revelation of the church of Laodicea. They had also become rich. But the words from God to that congregation, he says, For, for you say, I am rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. But God says you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may actually be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. One of the things that Paul is pointing at here and that Jesus just highlighted in Revelation is that what happens at the gospel is a complete perspective shift of life. Everything changes in light of the cross. Be careful here. What I'm not 
saying, what I don't want to come across this morning is this sense of broken glass Christianity. That Christianity is only about suffering. And if you're only doing it right, you'd be miserable, always showing how holy you were by getting into difficult situations. I'm not saying that. Christianity does provide a perspective shift. They, they had the intention that at the gospel that they were going to reign with Christ. And in a sense, they're right. You know, the word eschatology, the, the view of the end times where Christ's as sitting on his throne and he creates a new heaven and a new earth and the people of God reign as kings. In a sense, that's right. But they had taken that now into the immediate context so much so that their ministry became, we don't have to suffer. In fact, ministry for us is, is more about adding to our accolades and adding to our ease and adding to our riches and adding to our social standing because, well, we're Christians. Paul says, you've got that wrong. And yes, there might be a day of reigning. But those in light of Christ have a complete perspective. shift. What does it look like to be reigning with Christ now, to be holding on to Christ now? Well, being like Christ now means acting like Christ in the world. Jesus himself said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to come after you too. And why would they do such a thing? Because the people of God have the message of their Savior. The message of the conqueror of the world, which is truth in a world that doesn't like truth, goes against the grain of their inclinations, it cuts across their hearts with guilt and shame, exposes them before a holy God, offering them redemption, it does that. Reviled, they turn the other cheek. Slandered, they don't mind. They rejoice, considering it a great benefit to be slandered for the name of Christ. And the truth is, what happens is we preach Christ crucified. A congregation and a ministry that is not chiefly communicating from a place of humility and gratitude cannot effectively communicate the gospel. Let me say it a different way. A heart that attaches itself to the gospel in self-exalting pride is a failure of communicating the gospel. What can Christ benefit me from earthly gain and earthly treasures is not the gospel. It is a call to come and die, but to come and live with Christ. Is a call to be forgiven. Love, we're taught, is patient and kind, willing to turn the other cheek, pursuing the lost, even if we're hated on the account of Jesus' name. It's at the cross that we see the ministry before us. Look at how Paul highlights this, verses 9 through 13. For I, I think that God has exhibited us apostles the last of all as men sentenced to death. we become a spectacle to the world. I won't read the whole thing. But the irony here and the sarcasm is, is pretty rich. We're fools for Christ, but, but you're wise, sure. We're weak, but you guys, you're strong. You're held in honor. But us, us apostles, disrepute. We hunger, thirst, poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless. We labor, 
working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We're the scum of the world. Does that sound like reigning? Well, in a sense, as Christian, it should. Following Christ is exactly what it looks like. Which brings up a really good point, doesn't it? The offer of the gospel is much harder than it is first appeared to be. Having the offer of forgiveness sounds great. Having the offer of God's love sounds great. Having the offer of eternal life sounds great, and it all is. But don't forget that the Christian gospel is also a call of your entire life, a call of every breath, kids, middle school, elementary school, high school, college, adults, grandparents. It is a call to come and live with the king, following his example, which is the primary thesis of this entire section of Scripture. Anybody can come and talk. Anybody can come and, and run their mouth. Anybody can come with, with great doctrines written down on paper. But it doesn't come in power. Christianity is nothing to you if it's just disassociated doctrines on a page that you heard from the catechism. It's power when it's believed and obeyed and lived out. This congregation is a powerful instrument in the hands of God when it is lived out. And that's precisely what he said. As, as, as for me, he's, he's shaming them, but he's not trying to just mock them. He's trying to teach them a lesson. When I came to you as an apostle, how did I live among you? Aristotle uses a word in the Greek context, was the highest virtue. It's megalosuchia. Megalosuchia. Great heartedness. And it was the virtue of a man with such a great soul that he would not endure an insult. That's what it meant to be a great man in Greece. But Paul comes with an otherworldly wisdom saying that a great man, even when he's reviled, continues to bless. That's the strength of a real man in Christ. That's to follow the true king. The truth is we are called to share in Christ's sufferings. That's what scripture calls us to. Philippians 3.10, Paul writes that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. There's that theme again connecting it. What is the power of Christ's resurrection? He says that I might share with his sufferings becoming like him in his death that I might live in such a way that my Christian ministry, come on, Corinthians, you're not getting this. You're not putting the, the dots together. We are called to share in Christ's sufferings. Let's go. Let's go. Romans eight seventeen. it says a similar thing. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, he's expounding. Romans 8, this is great stuff. We've just been redeemed. What are all the benefits? Heirs of God provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. In other words, we, we, don't, we don't have any other options. 
Again, it's not broken glass Christianity where, okay, well now I'm just going to be miserable and show how holy I am with a sad face. It's not that, but it's with joyful, otherworldly mindset, holding on to Christ, that in this world, if we are like Christ, Paul says, when you are like Christ, administering the gospel faithfully, it cannot help but reek to the world. It's the light of God. John 3, 19, is, this is uh, the judgment, that light came into the world. But man, love the darkness so much. It's like a cockroach in the basement. You turn the light on, they all just kind of go, run away. Don't like that. And a faithful Christian message comes in humility. It comes in suffering. It comes in the truth of Christ. It comes saying, God is your father and you owe him allegiance. It comes in the proclamation of a crucified Messiah and say, there is your king. It is foolishness and it is shameful, but it's the gospel. And if you forget it, and our message comes with only benefits in an earthly sense, through an earthly lens, and this will be better for you. And you can do all the other things in life that you want and get Christ too. Right? You can live like a heathen and nothing's going to change in your social standing. Your family, the get-togethers with family, nothing's going to change. But you can also get Christ. You, you've got probably another thought coming. Paul says, look at my life and be a little bit rebuked. Be a little bit rebuked. In Christ's economy, it's those who are last that are truly first second point is leading by example <clears throat> verse 14 says i don't write these things actually to make you ashamed i mean he probably did a little bit but that's not like his final goal his final goal is to admonish you as my children though you have countless guides in christ you don't have many fathers so i became to you a father in jesus christ through the gospel i urge you to be imitators of me which is why I sent you Timothy, who's my child in the faith. Hmm. As I remarked before, the Christian life is a way. It's an entire lifestyle. It's not just an idea. I find it remarkable that Paul can say such a thing. Be an imitator of me. And I wonder how many of us could say that. Be an imitator of my life. It's not lost on me today that I'm being installed as your pastor this evening and my children are being baptized this morning. What they need from their dad and what you need from me are not just quotable rhetorical flourishes that are doctrinally correct. When you interview me as your pastor, which you did, you did a thorough job, you don't just need the right answers. You don't just need to see my credentials or my degrees. But our ambition is a life that's lived faithfully. This isn't about me. It's about all of us. Most of life's lessons that we learn are learned by watching, not by hearing. Not by seeing. Back to the Corinthians, they, they were a powerless bunch that had been entrusted with a handful of doctrines that they had gotten all muddled up. Paul had to come back and set him straight and say, look at, look at my life. 
You've had countless guides. You've had 10,000 teachers, but what you need is a dad. What a word to us dads. You need somebody to stand next to you and show you what it looks like with quiet confidence. You need somebody to model it, to live it out. Sons, traditionally, have been expected to carry on their father's trade, their values, their heritage, and their name. Which apparently is what Timothy was to Paul. He said, even if I can't come to you myself, I can send you a son. I can send you someone whose life is worth imitating. Why is that important? Well, they needed to have lives of their own worth imitating for their own children, for their own context, and for the world around them. They're called to live up to what they know. He says that they know the right things, but they, they were powerless. True minister, like Paul, doesn't speak of you, you guys. He says we. We need to be like this. We need to be like our Savior. We need to act faithfully. A deed is worth a thousand words. Lastly, the kingdom does not consist in talk but in power. Verses 18 through 21. Some are so arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord will. And I'll find out the talk of these arrogant people, but I want to see their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power. And what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or love and a spirit of gentleness? Such a, that is a, the funny thing is that's like a very fatherly thing. Don't make me come down there. He's like ending on a very classic fatherly note. The truth is, if we connect this with back in chapter one, which is sometimes hard to do weeks away from each other, is that the type of worldly wisdom that they were trafficking in had emptied the cross of its power. This is verse 17 of chapter one. And so no, in other words, I mean, to be quite frank with you guys, I look around sometimes in my own life as a minister particularly, and I look and go, where's the power of the gospel? Where's just the movements of the kingdom? Where is it that, are, that the churches are just, just, I can say there's the power of God. And to be honest, I don't know what that looks like sometimes. I think it looks like revival at times. It looks like growth at times. But it seems to me that there is there is forgiveness, there is humility, there is a declaration of Christ as, as king, there is a high sense of his glory, there is reparations and repair in marriages and friendships, and there is a bringing in, a laying down of life for neighbor. There's, there's real power in all of the great treasury and storehouse we have theologically. But we're not able to just have these things as guideposts of what we think is right, but they are the... They are the written-down illustration of what's happening in our lives. They're the explainer of the power, not the power themselves. Does that make sense? I've gone to plenty of churches, plenty of websites, plenty of bylaws, plenty of statements of faith, and I go, looks like they've got all the boxes checked. That's not it. You can't just have all your boxes checked. There needs to be a power in the ministry. And the power, according to Paul in this text, is not some strange summoning or some secret sauce. He says it's obedience. It's obedience to Christ-like sacrifice. I read last time, but I'll summarize it for you. 
Philippians 2 gives this the, the clearest explanation of this. He says, why is Jesus' name the name above every other name in the world? Well, it's because he left the throne and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. The truth is, I've seen so many theologians and pastors with just terrible marriages. I've seen a lot of, of ministry leaders whose, whose kids wouldn't follow them anyway. Seeing congregations have all their ducks in a row and be lifeless. And we pray that as the Corinthians, that would not be us. This isn't a reprimand sermon. It was just the next set of verses. <laughs> Didn't choose this for you. But it is a it is a wise warning, isn't it? I don't want to have all of the doctrine right and none of the power. So by God's mercy, we lay our lives down with a keen eye to Christ, what he's called for us to do. And it's by grace that we're able to do it. And you know what happens? Jesus says, you know what will happen if you, if you act like me, if you take up your cross into the world? A servant's not greater than his master. If they hated me, they'll hate you. If you've got the world's applause and the world's accolades and you're feeling like Christianity has only been uh, another badge on your chest, well, probably something wrong. It should be a little uncomfortable. As we approach Christmas time, I think this is a phenomenal thought to think of. As Paul reminds us, you've had so many teachers, but you haven't had a father. Through Scripture, we had seen so many prophets. We'd seen the exchange of kings come. You can almost hear it in the language of Jesus says, you know, you've had so many physicians, but nobody could heal this woman. We needed power. We needed power. We needed the Father to come and show us what it was like to truly live. We fall short of the glory of God. He showed us what living up to the glory of God looks like and what living up to the glory of God in our world, being like him in our world, will be very difficult. But by his grace, very joyful. Listen to how it's read as we conclude in Isaiah 53. The consummate example of the Father loving us, showing us what it is like to truly be one who loves. Who has believed that he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. And he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he was one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that was before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. 
As for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. I'd like to go on and read the rest of the chapter. The truth is, That's where power comes from. Can you imagine Jesus coming with just a handful of lessons? Saying, there you go. I taught you perfect lessons. He came by example. Con- confusing example, to be honest. Peter stands before him and says, no, Lord, you can't be crucified. You don't lay your life down. He says, what does he say? Get back, Peter, you're wrong. He says, depart from me, Satan. No. Being like Christ is not just doctrine. It is a life. In Christianity, we're calling up kids. What we're calling you to is not just acceptance of Jesus. It is living like Jesus. It is a life under the power of God that he will, by his grace, draw those to himself, heal your hurts, bring you everlasting life, cleanse you white as snow, Mend the brokenness in your own life. There is hope for relationships and the lost and all these things we pray for. What is that if we just pray for them with no power? What is that? We practice that every week. We want the power of God. So we want to be people filled with the Spirit of God, which means people by faith acting like God acts. And that's our inheritance in Christ, and that's what the theme of Corinthians is, is living under the cross, always before us.